Mexico, 1971. The Hidden History of Women's Football. Written by Ruby Malone. She steps out onto the wobbly metal staircase and is immediately ambushed by an intense heat, confounding all her senses. As she momentarily stops to catch her breath, her ears begin to register it. Cheers, claps, drums and whistles, a roaring crowd waiting below. She looks around eagerly to see where the celebrity is, but there is none. It's just her and her teammates. It's 1971 and the English team have arrived at the first Women's World Cup in Mexico. It all began with a bus driver from Luton. In the late 1960s, Harry Batt and his wife June founded and managed a women's team called Chiltern Valley Ladies. Bat was not your standard man of the 60s. He spoke several languages, had many contacts in Europe and was a passionate advocate for the women's game. Leah Caleb was one of the women to play for Bat. He he was a character. He had a good sense of humour. But we always say, and I think the best way to describe him, he really was a visionary and a maverick. His belief in the women's game at that time was incredible. The Women's Football Association, the WFA, was formed at the end of 1969 and the FA finally lifted their 1921 ban on women's football in January 1970. Despite this development, Bat became increasingly impatient with the pace at which the game was developing in England, particularly the absence of a national team. Cue Mexico 1971. Bat had taken teams out to unofficial European tournaments in Italy, run by the Federation of Independent European Female Football, otherwise known as FIEF. So when an unofficial World Cup was posed by the Federation in 1971, he readily accepted. The team he took was mainly made up of Chiltern Valley players, with a few selected from other clubs. No one could have prepared the team for what greeted them in Mexico. The organisers were clever in the way they commercialised the tournament. They created a mascot, Xochil, which in Mexico means flower. A young girl dressed in a Mexico kit with a football under her arm. Xochil gave the tournament a visual focal point and appeared on a range of merchandising. The official sponsor was the drinks company Martini and Rossi. Although FIEF clearly respected the players' on-pitch abilities, they weren't afraid to exploit the female gender to promote the tournament. Xochitl wore pigtails and had an hourglass figure. In a New York Times article prior to the tournament, the head of the organising committee declared, We're really going to stress the feminine angle. It's natural. 
the combination of the two passions of most men around the world, soccer and women. Many of the English team's older players were unable to make the trip due to work commitments, so the team ended up being a young one. Leah Caleb was the youngest player to go out to Mexico with the team. She was only 13 years old. June and Harry back came to see my parents, explained what was happening, that we'd be chaperoned, and and they gave their blessing. You then realise how amazing they were to let me go. There, there was no, you know, there's no communication field. I mean, there was a telephone, but not every house had a telephone in the 70s. So we didn't talk on the phone. The only communication was letters that I wrote while I was there. It was a, it was surreal from the moment we stepped off the aeroplane to the moment we stepped back on. And that was August the 7th, and I think we came back September the 6th. So we had a lot of time out there, and there was always fans, there was always people wanting your autograph, we went on television, there was a reporter with us the whole time. It, it is like it's another, it's an out-of-body experience now. Yeah, just everywhere you went. Uh, one, we were going to watch a men's game, and our, our coach was stopped because there was all these fans and they were handing things through the window and wanted autographs. There's actually a picture of Chris and Paula with their heads out signing autographs through the coach window. It was that surreal and people were fantastic. We went to a cocktail party at the British Ambassador's house. We were taken to the Cuban club. The people were just lovely forever. It's just such a lovely feeling when you think back. Even though I was that young, we were so embraced. We were proud to go out there and play. Mexico's national newspapers produced regular match reports and updates on the various teams' off-pitch activities. After the swinging 60s, England was considered glamorous in the eyes of the Mexican people. One Mexican paper nicknamed the girls Las Chicas de Carnaby Street. Trudy McCafferty's exotic blonde hair was constantly mentioned in newspaper articles, which also reported that she had hundreds of admirers. But in reality, the majority of the team were only teenagers. Two young boys came, walked from outside the city just to give me flowers. There was nothing loaded in them. Everybody was respectful. Everybody we met was respectful. They asked me to come to TV. Now, it would not happen nowadays, and... Would I do it as a 13-year-old nowadays? No, I'm sure I wouldn't. But I did go onto the TV and they asked me just a couple of questions. And one of them was, and could I answer it in Spanish? Do you like Spanish boys? So it was C. But at no point in time ever did I feel uncomfortable. There was a total of six teams at the tournament and the English women played their group games against Argentina and Mexico. An astonishing 90,000 people filled into the Azteca Stadium for their game against the home side. The deafening sounds of bangers, drums, whistling, cheering and jeering met the team as they walked out onto the pitch in the fierce midday sun. It was packed and they used to have people coming on before the game and at half-time and horses and it was like a big carnival. And it was amazing, yeah. The team played two games in less than 24 hours. 
They weren't prepared at all for the impact this would have on their bodies or the physicality of the opposing teams. Their forward, Yvonne Farr, suffered a broken leg and Carol Wilson played the whole game against Mexico with a broken bone in her foot. In total, eight English girls were treated in hospital. We played at four o'clock against Argentina and then the next day we played at 12 o'clock against Mexico. And we had a squad of 14 and we had two players that really were badly injured. We were tactically naive, I think, about what we were facing. Having said that, yes, he played against European teams, but certainly not. And the Mexicans and the Argentinian women played very much like the men. The English women lost 4-1 to Argentina and 4-0 to Mexico. They should have been out of the competition, but they had the adoration of Mexico and were asked to stay on. A fifth-sixth place playoff match with France was hastily arranged. They had six days to prepare, but that wasn't enough for some of the English team to recover. By the time match day was upon them, they had to borrow three Mexican players. France beat them 3-2 and the English women's time at the tournament was over. They did, however, leave with some consolation. They had captured the hearts of the Mexican people. Whilst the girls endured the hectic mixture of excitement, disappointment and liberation, emotions were brewing back in the UK. The WFA had declined the offer to field a team in the tournament, and so Bat named his team the British Independents, to mark them as separate to an official England team. He also ensured they didn't don the Three Lions in an attempt to appease the WFA. But tournament scoreboards and the Mexican media billed the team simply as Inglaterra, unaware of the implications this may have. This did not go down well with the WFA. Harry Batt was later banned from the organisation and was effectively forced out of women's football. The WFA outlawed the World Cup competition and the players received bans, with the length dependent on their age. Some of the women quit the sport completely, including the captain of the team, Carol Wilson. The way it, it was portrayed here and the lack of support just floored everybody. It's been a real, it's been quite cathartic actually, looking back, because we now realise what we actually did face. And quite sad what Harry had to cope with. The fact that it's dismissed in the way it has been dismissed, now I'm older looking back, actually is wrong. There's no coincidences in life. 1972, the WFA formed a committee to have an England team. That is not a coincidence. It is a fact that Harry Batts because he had that vision, he had the tenacity, he had the strength of mind, <clears throat> the independence, the contact with Martini Rossi. He had all of that vision and he just kept pushing them. And sadly, it's a sign of the times. They, they just didn't know how to deal with it. 
Sadly, much of the UK press coverage focused on the battering the English team took, rather than what an incredible step forward it was for women's football. Headlines read, Soccer girls limp home to a rumpus, and Football mayhem as women are hurt. A couple of weeks later, the Luton Saturday Telegraph carried a double-page spread with the headline, Soccer Girls Who Won the Hearts of the Mexicans. But in a tone that was typical of the English press at the time, they were billed as footballing beauties, and readers were told, Don't laugh, one day there may be a female arsenal. The women had had a glimpse of the future of women's football, but they were swiftly brought back to reality on their return to the UK. Ted Hart, PR man for England during the 1970 Men's World Cup, approached BAT with the idea of holding another Women's World Cup at Wembley in 1972. Hart suggested that two England teams could take part, an A-team assembled by the WFA and a B-team put together by BAT. The WFA again declined the offer. Harry Batt did ask to be allowed back into the WFA fold once more, but to no avail. In the end, it would take decades for women's football to get close to the profile he had hoped for. The women's game plateaued from the early 1970s until the FA officially took over in 1993. Even then, things didn't really pick up until two decades later. The story of the English women's team taking part in the 1971 World Cup was lost to the nation for over four decades and is absent from all official records. FIFA state that the first official Women's World Cup took place in China in 1991. It's so sad because it does appear to be written out of the history books. And sadly, our society, as we've seen in all other walks of life over the last few years, chose to write certain things out of history books. Thanks so much for listening to my podcast. You can find me on socials at Ruby G Malone on Twitter and BB underscore underscore Ruby on Instagram. Catch you guys soon.